week's edition of Taboo Talk with Jay Louder. Now, I have to set this up. A few weeks ago, I just came back from El Dorado, Arkansas, and we had a what is called an area-wide crusade, which basically is where a lot of different churches from different faiths and different denominations come together for one common goal, and that is to spread the gospel of Christ. Well, before we even did that, we went down there for um, an advanced meeting and I met a lady there by the name of E.J. Yarbrough. And no joke, as a matter of fact, my wife was with me. The second we met her and her husband, Larry, we just loved them. There was something about her spirit, something about her countenance, and you could just see that God was on her life. Well, anyway, we went and did the crusade, and we got back. Of course, we got to know P.J. and her husband even a little bit better and they're just amazing people. They pastor a church there in, in El Dorado. And anyway, as we got to know them, we came back, and one of our staff members who was there made mention that PJ would be a great person to have on the podcast. Now, if you met PJ, you would think that this is a lady. She's very classy. She's a beautiful lady, very sweet, loves Christ. And if you met her just from the appearance and from talking to her and how positive she is, there's just a countenance about her. There's just a glow about this lady. You would probably think what I thought, which is this lady has probably had a pretty just great life. And so I was absolutely stunned when our director of operations, Sharonda, told me some of the different aspects of her story. Honestly, it's one of the most incredible stories I think you're ever going to hear. And those of you that listen to our podcast know that we regularly have, and we cover a lot of different bases. Uh, We try to shuffle the deck and have different people from different walks of life. But we do like to use testimony when we can. The same reason why when you watch television, you'll you'll see that maybe it's a weight loss uh, commercial. Well, they'll often use a testimony because people like to see someone else who's been where they've been that they can relate to. And so today, I want to welcome, honestly, no joke, one of the favorite ladies I have ever met in years of being on the road. PJ, welcome to today's podcast. Thank you so much, Jay. It's such an honor to be here with you today. Well, you're, you're, just, uh, you're just one of those people that when you meet them, you don't forget them. And again, that wasn't just the case with me. That was the case with uh, staff that was with us. My wife, matter of fact, who normally doesn't get to go to our events, she was there. And we all just fell in love with you. Uh, Again, I think people are going to be amazed by your story. Because listen, what I said is so true. Just meeting you, you just seem to be a person who has always had it together. You're you're one of the most positive people that I've ever met. And I wish people, I wish somehow, obviously it's not possible, but I wish somehow we had a video where people could just see you. And I mentioned that you (laughs) and your husband also, I can't remember, again, forgive me for this, but we had over 40 participating churches. What is the church there that you guys are leading? Yes, my husband is the pastor of Changing Lives Ministries Church here in El Dorado, Arkansas, and that's been for the last 17 years. 17 years. Are you originally from El Dorado, PJ? Well, I was actually born in 
I would say almost North Arkansas, which would be Russellville, and then moved here to this area about 12 miles from El Dorado when I was about six years old to a place called Callion, Arkansas. So coming to El Dorado was coming to town when I was a little girl. Yes. And I've got to know before we get into the podcast, how did you get the nickname PJ? Because that's obviously not your real name. Right, right. My real name is Chanel, and PJ is my second nickname. I had another nickname when I was really, really young, and that was Pinky, because my favorite color has always been pink. And PJ is something I acquired down the road a bit after I was adopted, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. And it stands for Precious Jewel. Okay. All right. That makes sense now. Well, and let me just say (laughs) as we get started today that you have a phenomenal book. You actually have two books. We're only going to mention one today because it's really going to be the preface for what we talk about. And for those of you that are listening, this is going to be a two-part series. But the, the I believe it's the first book that you wrote. It's entitled Born a Statistic, which in and yes, of sir. itself, yeah, that, that's a, an attention getter. And I think that's a great place for us to start. Again, having known you for such a short time, even when I found out that that was a title of your book, when it showed up here to our office, I was like, is this the same person that I met? So let's just start right there. It's a phenomenal book, phenomenal story, but maybe that's a good starting place. How were you born a statistic, PJ? I think in many ways I was born a statistic, but I'll tell you that the first thing that comes to mind is that I was born my mother's third child. And not only was I her third child, but I was her third child as a teenager. She had my first sister at 16, my second sister at 17, and me at 18. So right out the gate, we have this poor African-American mom a three, who uh, later on had a fourth daughter three years, I'm sorry, four years after me. And so in a very, very poor community where she was a person who did not have her parents, neither of her parents were living. And she was living with a family member who had multiple children. So she was just one more in the house. And now, again, the mother of these three little girls and Born a statistic, also no father to be spoken of. I did later on find out who my father was, but he was not in the picture. My sisters had two different fathers. So three babies, three years, three guys. I'm telling you, born a statistic is certainly something that easily is explained in my early years. Yeah, that's definitely a a very tough start. And at some point, I do want to get into at whatever point we need to, but I do want to hear about you eventually meeting your father. Is your mother and father still alive, PJ? My biological mother is living. My biological father is not living. Is your biological mother, does she live there near you? Do you see her often? No, she actually lives in Oklahoma and The last time I saw her was 2020, and I've shared with several people that in that year, we all know that was a very interesting year for the entire globe, the pandemic. However, that was the only year in my entire lifetime that I've seen her three times in one year. Wow. And I have not seen or heard from her since. Now, your mother, obviously, there were some probably some difficulties. Did she grow up in a home, PJ, where maybe she was repeating behavior that she had seen? 
or did were there other issues that led to the situation where she not only was pregnant at an early age but had different fathers? What, what's a little bit of a background on her as well? I wish I knew more, and I did ask those questions of my mother, but she was not to the point, and to my knowledge, still not to the point that she wanted to share a lot of information. So what I've gathered, I've gathered from a document that's called an adoption summary, which was something that literally were typed notes in the late 80s that were being kept as they pieced together information that she provided. So I did find that my maternal grandmother passed when my mother was very young, and that's all I know. I don't know anything about her upbringing. I know very little um, about her father, if she had other siblings, but I do know she moved in with an aunt who had lots of children, and I believe there were multiple children in that household, and she became just another child that really was not able to to be supervised the way that maybe she needed to be and really started doing things on her own and fell into some behaviors and addictions that led to the three of us being born those three years in a row. So that's all I know. And again, it's pieced together just by notes here and there. My mother, when I asked those questions of her, she just wasn't to the point that she could share. Is your mother a believer now, PJ? I do know that she has had a history of attending church and that she does believe in in Jesus. And and I believe that even at one time she potentially provided the information that she had received him as her savior. However, she is still very much into a life of addiction and very hard to catch up with. And oftentimes we are not aware of where she is or what she's doing. Right. Well, we see this oftentimes. And I think about even, over the years, just in years of ministry and people that I've met that have been incarcerated, people that have had multiple problems, a lot of times that is a result of their own upbringing. And, and it sounds like mm-hmm. maybe she had some adversity in her life at an early age, which may have played a role into some of the difficulties that she's had. Uh, you know, you mentioned that she's obviously fought addiction. And if I remember correctly, I think even in your book, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, at, at one point she was even incarcerated. Is that correct, PJ? Absolutely. For the majority of my childhood into my young adult life, she was incarcerated several times. I can remember the first time I ever spoke with her on the telephone, she was incarcerated at that time. And I was about 12 at that age. And so it's been an ongoing issue throughout my life and her life as well that she has been incarcerated. Yeah, it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around that, to even understand what it's like to be a young person like you were. And as you already mentioned, the father figure was absent, and then your mother's incarcerated. I mean, this must have been a whirlwind for you. And maybe, I mean, I'm assuming this must have been a difficult time, too, of coming up with your own identity, you know, who you are. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And I thought that uncertainty about who I was for many, many years. I I can remember wondering who I looked like. I can remember times where I would hear my friends or people that I was hanging out with talk about how they were just like this person in their family or, you know, hearing them receive comments such as, oh, you look just like 
your mom or you look just like your dad. And I always had this feeling about, well, who do I look like? And it's funny you should ask that, Jay, because when I finally met my mother, and I say met her because I was taken at such an early age that I don't have memories of her being mom. I met her when I was about 19 years old, saw her face to face for the first time since I was a little bitty girl, and we're pretty much twins. We are very, very, very much identical to one another in so many ways. And I also look a lot like my biological father in the way that we have our build or the way that we walk and different things of that nature. But when I visit where I was born, people oftentimes tell me how much I look like my mother. So it took me being almost 20 years old to see who I looked like, and then I despised it. So identity has always been something that I've struggled with. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize that I had to root my identity in something different than what my family of origin was able to provide for me. PJ, because your mother was incarcerated and fought addiction, did this mean that you were being shuffled from one house to the other? I mean, you were just oscillating back and forth. Was it family members that were taking you in and you and your sisters? How was that working? What I thought about when you said that, I would have to think about it as a community effort. I, again, don't have any record or knowledge that we were actually with family members. However, again, To this day, at 45 years old, when I visit the community where we were born, there are people who come up to me and say, I kept you. I took care of you when your mom was in trouble. I would come and get you. I would feed you. We would make sure you got to school. I hear those comments even now, this many years later. And so I do believe that there were people who were very much aware of this teenage mom who had these little girls who needed help and they knew she was in trouble and I can't call their names and I don't remember every single detail. I do know that it was very much of a community effort to take care of us and we were shuffled back and forth from one place to another and that included us being called into the the Child Protective Services Office several times and we had a caseworker as early as me even being born. I think they were involved. And so when I say community, it was truly the people who lived there in the area, but also the agencies that were involved as well. Yeah, that must be so difficult. I, I wonder, PJ, did you struggle with bitterness towards your mom? Or was it one of those scenarios? Because I think oftentimes, whether a person grows up rich or poor or oppressed or traumatized, Oftentimes they think that everybody grows up this way because that's all that they know. And so I wonder, did you fight bitterness or was it one of those deals where, again, you you just thought everybody grows up this way? Oh, I definitely struggle with bitterness. There was something that made me realize I was different than everyone else. At a very, very young age, I was able to identify that something was wrong. I I could sense that there was another way. I just had not had the actual experience. And so for many years, bitterness was my go-to. I was angry and so angry that I began to have behaviors that were very violent. And there were times when I would isolate if, if I needed to get away from those emotions, or there were times where I would actually act upon those, those actual emotions that were coming up. And so The root was bitterness for 
many, many years going into my early teen years, I would say, I was always angry, always mad, had lots and lots of bitterness that I had to deal with. And that's certainly understandable. You mentioned that you recognized your life was different. Did you recognize that because you had other friends that weren't growing up the way that you were growing up? Or was it because people made comments or people maybe made fun of you or gave you a hard time about it? Or was it a conglomeration of all of it? I would say that it was definitely all of it. I had many times where I have these vivid memories of being at school and realizing that people were leaving with their parents but I was leaving with a different adult almost every other day. Or I can remember visiting with what I now realize were my sisters at the DHS office, but then I would be confused because we wouldn't stay together. They would go one way, I would go another. And it just felt uncertain and it felt like this is not right. And then when your parents, and and when I say that, I mean even foster parents are changing so often you realize, okay, the people aren't the same from last week. And so I just had a sense that this was not the normal. And so I I did have lots of combinations of things that I really would sense and notice and wanted to see what would be different if I had just this one place home to go to where things didn't change so frequently. I know you mentioned in your book that there was neglect and people could ascertain just from what you've already said that neglect would certainly be a component of growing up the way that you did. But you also talk about in your book that that you also suffered abuse. Was that at the hands of, of family? Was that at the hands of foster people? And by the way, how old were you when you actually went into the foster system? I know that's multiple questions there. Sure. So I actually went into foster care permanently just a couple of days before my third birthday. I had been, if you will, in the system since birth because I think there were open cases with my two older sisters. And so they had their eyes on her, if you will, as a mother. But there, right before my third birthday, I was officially and permanently taken from my mother's care. And what led up to that, the neglect you mentioned, were things such as not having food, being left alone, I believe going to uh, preschool or Head Start is what the program was called, without any evidence of us having been um, bathed or just different things that the adults who were in the area were able to, to notice. And then as far as more neglect, I can remember not having food in our apartment. And so if I am three, my oldest sister is five, and I can recall times where we ate raw spaghetti or if there had been potatoes peeled, we were eating the peelings out of the trash can. Many times there were uh, KFC chicken boxes that I can see very, very clearly in my mind that we were digging through and gnawing on bones to to find us some type of nourishment. And so those were some things where I know we were neglected and left alone in that apartment to fend for ourselves. And as, as we know, that's abuse, but also there was abuse that took place there in my, in my mother's place where she would leave us in the care of what we later found out was a family member's care who was an adult 
who had some developmental delays and he would oftentimes just to put it very bluntly rape me and I, I can't speak to my sister's experiences but he would uh, abuse me sexually and you know I, I just know that that went on for a significant amount of time and then once we were taken permanently there were abusive things that happened in some of the foster homes where there would be times where people wouldn't feed us like they should. And I was never with my sisters. I was always in a home where there might be other foster children or I was by myself or they had their own children and I was added into that group. And so I know there were times where I was sent to bed with no food because I didn't want to maybe eat something that was on my plate or quote unquote, I had been a bad girl that day because I had cried too much. And there were those who would also, although they weren't supposed to, they would give us what I would call a whooping uh, for different things. And so there was all kinds of abuse going on from that two-year-old to almost seven-year-old lifetime in the foster care, in my mom's care, and out of my mom's care. So really, I mean, you were suffering emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, really in every way. And, and that was that you were just a really young girl at the time. Yes. Yeah. My wife, uh, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, and so I'm not revealing something that that some of our listeners don't know about. And, and one of our staff members uh, has also talked about it publicly. And that mm-hmm. we, won't, we won't dive too far into that, but I will say what a lot of people don't realize is that's that type of abuse is – even if it happens once or multiple times, that that's something that doesn't just go away. Many people struggle with that for right. years. It's it's the crime that continues to go on and on and on. So were mm-hmm. there people in the community, PJ, that knew what was going on, or was this so isolated that, I mean, were there other families or people nearby that knew what was going on and just kind of turned a blind eye, or were most people unaware of it? I do believe that it was very much known, and, and that goes back to my point of, the community effort. So many people have made references many, many years later that they helped or they they did this or they did that. I've had a few who have even said, you know, we tried to, to get you or we went and we tried to see what we could do, but none of that really came full circle, obviously. And so I don't believe that this was a hidden thing. I believe this was very, very apparent. And unfortunately, my mind has decided that maybe there were others who were in this same situation. And although everyone literally lives on one street in that community, there just wasn't any hard evidence that I can find that anyone did a lot to take on the responsibility of caring for us or helping my mother in any way. And that might be because they weren't able to or other reasons that I'm unaware of. Has that been something also that you struggle with for a season? Why didn't somebody intervene? Why is it that people pulled the curtains on what was going on in my life? Or is that just one of those things where it wasn't that foreign for the community that you lived in and you just accepted it? Well, I think that for a season, I did have lots of questions about why didn't someone step up and then Finally, it came to my my understanding that somebody did step up. They made a phone call, and they called the Department of Human Services, Child Protective Services, to intervene. And that is when it really clicked for me that, thank goodness, they did that. So many people get confused when I say, I'm so thankful that someone made that call. 
Uh, and then I think that what's really interesting is that as now a mandated reporter and an educator for many, many years, a community liaison for several years and an advocate even for foster care, I oftentimes tell people I will make that phone call because that phone call saved my life. So while I had a season of why didn't someone, it did finally come to you know my heart that I'm so thankful that someone did step in, even if that's all they could do was make that phone call that made such a significant difference in my life. I would also be curious because in years of speaking to students, and of course, you know, I, even right there when I was in El Dorado, I spoke in countless schools, but I've heard so many students that were victims of physical, emotional, verbal, sexual abuse that incorrectly believed that it was their fault, that they did something. Matter of fact, my wife would tell you if she were on the podcast today that she was sexually abused. And for a long time, she questioned, well, was there something that I did that caused this? And of course, she wasn't to blame. But I wondered if you ever went through that, that the situation that you were involved in, that maybe somebody told you you were unworthy or, or they wished you'd never been born or, or maybe you went through a thing of thinking, maybe I deserve this. Did you ever fight that? Because a lot of people I've spoken to have dealt with that. I absolutely fought the same things. And I, I just could not figure out in my mind why this would happen to anyone. And so because of that, I decided it must have been something I did or something I didn't do that caused all of these troubles for me. And I felt very, very much like it was just me. Like no one else could have ever gone through what I had gone through. And of course now, hindsight is twenty twenty. I have a story, but so does everyone else. But I did blame myself for so many years and wondered what it was about me. And I found that that even led to me sabotaging relationships that could have been good or or opportunities that I could have taken because I was still thinking about what had happened and wondering if it would happen again. So that victimization that I had created in my mind and even that thought of it's my fault really hindered me and I forfeited so many things that I think I could have had happen for me that would have been positive if I had not had that mindset. Right. Well, and I don't know a whole lot, to be honest with you, about the foster care system. You've already mentioned that you were put in foster homes, group homes. This happened at an early age. I would have thought, again, I'm not someone who's very enlightened on the foster system, but I thought that when a person was adopted or taken to a foster home, that's a place where they stayed at long term. But it seems as though from your story that you were kind of taken from place to place to place. Yes, that's true. So the, the goal of foster care is always, first and foremost, reconciliation. And so that foster care placement is intended to be temporary. It's really set up so that the parents have the opportunity to get things lined out so that their children can go back to them. Or if that does not happen and termination of rights takes place, then they are put in the place where they're going to be lined up for potentially to be adopted. Of course, we know that doesn't happen for all children. Some children end up aging out of foster care, but the intention of foster care is just to be that bridge between the parent and the child or the child and an adoptive home. And so I actually went to several foster homes in several settings over that nearly five-year period 
and finally did end up being adopted. But it was certainly a journey to that point. One of the things that you talk about in your book, PJ, was some things that had been written about you on your foster papers. Is that something you would feel mm-hmm. comfortable talking about? Absolutely. It's really what I tell people many times. It's like a baby book for me. I have a document that is over 100 pages long. And at the, on the front of it, it says adoption summary. And so at whatever point that I went into the system, there were caseworkers, doctors, teachers, psychiatrists, et cetera, who were keeping notes about me. And they put them all in this one packet for potential adoptive families to look through. And so in this document, it's where I have the one photograph of myself. I'm actually about age five in this photograph, and it's my baby picture. It's the only picture of me in that time frame. And so on the front of it, adoption summary, this photograph, my date of birth, and then all of these pieces of information that I would never have had had I not had this adopted, adoption summary. And so I learned a lot about my, my upbringing, my time in foster care, descriptions of my mother, descriptions of my father, all the medical issues I had had from birth to the time that I am adopted. It's such a valuable piece of my history. And again, I equate it to the baby books that I have on my two sons that kind of gives you the outline of what was happening in those years. There's so much valuable information there. Very sad to read through it if you are reading through it for the first time. But then again, a part of the testimony if you're reading through it and you realize that it doesn't end the way that it started. How old were you when you were able to get that documentation? I remember about being 12 or 13 when I found it for the first time at my adoptive parents' home. It was in a little safe in my mother's closet. And so she was keeping them safe for us for when we were older And I probably should not have been in her closet looking for it, but I got it out. I looked through it and I put it back. Later on, when I went to college, I decided to go back and get it. And I needed it for a project that I was doing and I ended up keeping it. And I'm so thankful that I did because later on down the road, my parents' home was destroyed by a fire and I am the only one that has my adoption summary. And I don't believe that was by accident. So was the adoption summary, obviously it was a form of enlightenment, but was it also something that was a negative blueprint where it caused you to believe certain things about yourself that were negative? Or was it more of a positive thing of being able to see uh, your photo as a young child and having a little bit of a background on your own story? Or was it some of both? It was some of both. There was more negative than positive. And I can remember just reading certain parts over and over again, especially as I thought about all the medical issues. I was hospitalized so many times. The doctor's notes are so very detailed, handwritten and or typed. And I could not understand how a baby, a young infant, a toddler was not being taken care of and having to be put in the hospital so many times for so many different mysterious things. And so it was a negative blueprint in many ways. But then several years down the road, 
I was able to find some glimmers of hope in there. And one of the things that I really have just grabbed onto and found that has really taken me so far in this journey is a little description that was taken by an educator, an early educator who worked at that Head Start where I was a student. And that was my only structured environment in this time frame prior to being adopted, which is really given a lot of notes there in that summary note, summary that I have. And so the notes that the teacher wrote about me were so impactful that most times when I go out now and I'm speaking to early childhood educators all over, I'm able to read to them this description that was written about me when I was three years old. And I find that to be a positive. I find that to be something that probably is the very thing that made me largely who I am today and why I made the career choices I made. So while there are so many negative things there, there are a few positives, of course. On a side note, PJ, were your sisters in the same foster care that you were in? Or or if not, were you able to have any interaction with uh, them or were y'all just completely separated? We were separated as far as homes are concerned. My two older sisters were in one home. I was in a home. And then later on, my baby sister was in another home. We did have what I believe were weekly visits together, but I I don't know for sure that was the frequency. I also attended a church at one foster home where my older sisters attended because the two people who had us in foster care, the, the, the ladies were sisters. And so we had some connections in and out of that time frame. It was never very, very consistent, but we were definitely uh, connected to one another in one way or another. It just sounds like a whirlwind. If it's not enough to have to deal with growing up without food, with an absentee mother, with an absentee father, the one thing that would seem to be somewhat of an anchor would be able to stay connected with your siblings. And then on top of everything else that you've already gone through, there's a separation with them. And that must have been difficult for you as a young age as well, because maybe while your father wasn't there or your mother was absent, your sisters were there. So that had to add another element of difficulty to the story. It really did. And so that's why I always talk about the value of if those parents are absent, anything we can do to make sure that children stay connected to someone in their family of origin, like I was able to with my sisters, is so, so important. And it made me really love the work I did later on in my life where we worked with sibling groups. We intentionally had our foster home available for sibling groups because they need one another because they don't have the mother and the father. And for those who have read my story or will read my story, the beautiful thing that happened is that all four of us, the four girls ended up being adopted together. And so we know that that, especially in the late eighties was unheard of, but we know that God really had his hand on us for us to be able to not only know each other, but to grow up together and to this day still be connected to four of us. You know, hearing you talk, PJ, I just felt led to do something. I've never done this with any of our guests, but I just can't help but believe that there are people that are going to listen to part one of this story and part two, 
and people that have gone through similar scenarios, uh, people that have been in the foster care system, people that have dealt with some of the issues that you've dealt with. And I mean, we've obviously not talked about this because this just came to my mind, but I want to say something to our listeners. If you want a copy of PJ's book, this is what I'm going to be willing to do. All you've got to do, and we're going to give PJ's uh, contact information. All you've got to do is order the book from PJ, and I am going to pay for the shipping and handling of that book. It will not cost you one red dime. Our ministry will will cover that. And that's not something I planned on doing, but just hearing your story, PJ, and knowing you, I think there's people that need to read your book. They need to hear your story because obviously we won't be able to cover every single thing. And so at the end of today's podcast, remind me in case I forget to let folks know how they can get a copy of that book. And again, all they've got to do is, is contact you, order the book, and we'll pay for the book, the shipping, handling, everything that's involved in it in order for it to be a ministry tool to help people who may still be coping or dealing with similar scenarios. How about that, PJ? Does that sound good to you? Wow, that is so kind, and I appreciate you giving people the opportunity to read the book and to hopefully be inspired and encouraged that, yes, you know, God can truly do the impossible. So I appreciate that offer so much, and I'll be glad to share with you how people can order the book. That sounds good. We, in the little time that we have left, I do want to talk about the broken promises. I know there was a family that had promised to keep you. What happened on that scenario? Because, again, if it's not difficult enough already, if there's not mm-hmm. enough struggles and, and all that you've gone through, now there's that hope. I mean, I can only imagine I've never been in the foster care system, but if a family takes me in and tells me that I'm going to have a home, I'm going to have a mom and dad, and there's that expectancy and that excitement, and then the rug is pulled out from underneath my feet. Tell us about that. It's such an interesting story. I can remember being at this home because it was my last foster home. I was there for the longest period of time, the most precious couple that you could ever imagine. And hindsight of 2020, they were a little older. They had a grown daughter, and they were helping her take care of her daughter. So she was like my little foster sister or niece. And we were just such great playmates. And I love this home. I felt the love. And I can remember getting to the point, I'm nearly, you know, I'm six, five, six years old now. And so I've been enough places that I realized this is a pretty good place. There were some things that weren't great about it, but there were more good things than there were bad. And so I can recall talking to her several times and her telling me, we're, we're going to keep you here. We want you to stay here. And we want you to grow up with your cousin is what they called her. And we're going to take care of you. And we're, we're working on it. And I, I now don't know for sure that they were. But I just can remember asking her one day, you know, am I good? And Because I can, I can hear the times where I was sent to bed again as that bad girl who cried or who was angry or who wouldn't eat or whatever it was. And and she told me, she said, yes, yes, you are such a good girl. And then I just, I hit her with the question, do you promise to keep me? And she said, yes, you're going to be here. This is your house, you know. And she started just telling me all the things that made me a part of this home and that I would always be there. And one, one part of me believed her with everything my little heart could hold. And at the same time, I think that there was this sense of 
Oh, no, you, you don't mean it. I've always been a skeptic, and I still say that. And contra- contradictory uh, things happened. I mean, she, I believe maybe she wanted to. I believe that maybe they wanted to. I don't know what happened that it didn't happen. But I do know that it was the time where I felt like rejection really came clear to me. Obviously, I'd already been rejected by my biological parents. I had been rejected by some other foster parents and and different situations. But right there, I still don't have the words to really describe what I felt in that moment when I figured out that they were coming to get me and take me from her house as well. And even though I was getting to go somewhere where I would be with my sisters and things were going to be different and and much more stable. I still uh, had a broken promise and I dealt with that broken promise for many, many years. How old were you PJ at the time when you did leave this home? I left that home when I was six and I was just about to be seven. I, I can't even imagine in my mind's eye, I'm trying to imagine what it was like that day when you're leaving, especially at that age. I, I mean, it, it must be decimating that day when this is it, goodbye. I mean, it, it must have been just shattering. Yes, it was. And I and I mourned them for so many years. It was as if they had they had perished, they had passed away, like they were even in many respects a dream. Like that that last place that ended up being a really okay situation that they, it didn't really exist, that it was just something, uh, a fragment of my imagination, if you will. And so it took a lot of years for me to come to grips with not being able to stay there with what I thought would be my forever family. And I have to tell you that it was many years later, I was actually married when my husband Larry had decided that he was going to take me back, if you will, to look back at my life and some things that had happened. And he took me back to see this couple. And, you know, I want to tell you that was a monumental piece of my healing to be back at their home and to go into their little den area and find a photograph of me still on their wall and the little red rocking chair that I used to sit in and play with right there in their home. And they were much older and since then have passed away. But, you know, I think they had good intentions and they just couldn't, you know, fulfill the promise. And I found out that, you know, God just had a different plan. I bet there were a lot of tears at that reunion. Oh my goodness. Yes, there were. And lots of smiles and, and lots of reminiscing and being able to just share with them thanks and gratitude for the part they did play. Wow. Yeah, as as troubling as the day that you left was, I, I can imagine that reunion was just a, a great piece of healing and a lot of wisdom from your husband to to embrace the idea of taking you back there and allowing there to be you guys re, reunited. I just love that part of the story. I, I would imagine, PJ, because of what you had gone through, there were a lot of phobias and fears because of the childhood trauma. That And you really kind of mentioned this a little bit in the aspect of sometimes you sabotage other relationships that might have been beneficial and or healthy because of the mm-hmm. baggage that you were still carrying. You had a you didn't just have baggage. I mean you had a, 
a, a container full of, of, of luggage that you were dragging around. Talk a little bit about what yeah. some of those phobias and fears were as a result of what you went through. I think that one of the main things was fear. I was afraid of everything. And that some of that was childhood. You know, a lot of children are afraid of the dark. But, you know, it was on a whole other level for me. And I am not ashamed to say that it has not been many years that I've been able to sleep in dark. There are still certain things that have to take place before I go to bed such as closing the closet door or making sure something is in place instead of out of place before I'm able to rest and go to sleep. I, I really had this root spirit of fear come into my life early on, and I, I know that's because of the instability. I was always in a different place, and I didn't always know the people. I didn't feel safe. There was very little structure in some places that I lived, and so I had a lot of fear. I suffered from nightmares for a number of years of people coming to get me or people leaving me or just people harming me. I also, at one of the foster homes I stayed, gained a fear of all types of animals, but specifically dogs. Um, They would put me outside and I would be out there all day And I just grew very, very fearful of all animals. And I'm still not an animal lover because of those early experiences. And then I've dealt with just a lot of worry, anxiety, paranoia, always thinking someone was out to get me again. That that sense of, will they come back and get me or are they going to leave me here? And so I've I've had a, a big, big trouble in my life with just trusting people and taking them at the word and, and really having to see that people meant what they said. And I've had to learn how to let people not have to get past my barriers and my walls of, can I trust you? And really learn to put that trust in God and not people because of all of these different fears and phobias that I had early on. And that's certainly understandable. And not to mention here, you guys have a great church there in El Dorado and El Dorado, excuse me. I know I got to pronounce it correctly, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, we, we've all been, have experienced at one time or the other being hurt by many people, but it hurts, especially when it's people from the church. And so um, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense where with what you've been through, that's what a lot of people may not understand that this hand grenade that went off in your life, that the shrapnel continued to fly. It kind of goes back mm-hmm. to what I said earlier about when people are sexually, sexually abused. I mean, it may mm-hmm. have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, but that doesn't mean that the after effects and the collateral damage are not still going on. Now we're getting close right. to the end of today's podcast. So what I'd like to do is before we get into there, there's a, and I just love the whole thing because really today we, we've talked a lot about promises that have been broken. But in part two, we're going to get into a lot more of the promises that are being kept. Today, I would like mm-hmm. to talk a little bit before we finish about this. So eventually, you know, kind of keep us up to speed as far as how old were you when you eventually left foster care? And then give us the beginning, not not the the deeper part of what happens in college, but the beginning part of that as well. When you finally kind of start sure. again to get on your feet in some ways, but yet as we're going to find out in part two, everything's not yet quite what it seems. Right, right. So one of the chapters in my book 
I have named it Happily Ever After. And that is with a question mark, because I think that many times we, we hold on to these fairy tales and we think that when something happens, oh, everything's going to be great from then on out. And that is what I thought about my forever family. And so my sisters and I were adopted together, as I've already shared. However, you know, we went into this environment where everything was new, a new set of parents, a new home, a new community, a new school, a new church, a new everything. And while they were always people who provided us with food, clothing, shelter, there were so many things that ended up being missing. There were so many voids in this family. And I many times have said that I believe they gave us what they knew to give us, but there were so many things that they obviously didn't know were important to support us in the way that we needed to be supported. And I really caution to say us because I have told many people, I've told my story and my sisters all have copies of the book. We've all discussed the book to some degree and no one has disagreed with anything I've shared, but this is certainly my perception of how I would have loved to have a more supportive mom and dad in, in our adoption. So that, that led me to being in a place where I was with my sisters and there were a lot of good things, but there are a lot of things that weren't good. And I found myself yet again in a situation where I had to get out of there because things weren't happy. Things weren't as I thought they would be. And then figuring out how to get out was the challenging part. I had always been just an average student. I, I never made bad grades, but I certainly didn't work up to my potential because I was a social bug. I went to school to see my friends and have a good time. But I knew that if I wanted to do something with my life, I couldn't stay there. And so that would take me into the conversation I believe we'll have next time where I had to find a way to get to college and to get outside of this meal town mentality that my family that I was adopted into had really succumbed to. Yeah, I was really escaping the rut. PJ, tell me this. How old were you when you became a believer? Were you Did you actually become a believer before you went to college or after? I became a believer at a very young age. I would say between seven and eight after being adopted into my adoptive family. We were introduced to Christ through them wholeheartedly, and I'm so grateful for that. And then I was on that journey of, you know, trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to receive Christ. And so it was in college that I really had such a pivotal moment that put me on the path that I needed to be on. But you would say you, you actually became a true follower of Christ, even though you weren't deep in your faith, you did have an actual mm-hmm. relationship, albeit maybe weak. Yes, I had a relationship for sure. Even if it was from Sunday to Sunday, Wednesday to Wednesday, Thursday to Thursday, because we were in church a lot. I think that we definitely had the foundation very early on. And then when it came time for me to walk that out alone, I had some things to figure out. Well, I'm glad that we did mention that as we conclude today's podcast, because it just shows the reality that, Number one, just because you become a believer or just because you're a person of faith. Again, we're not talking about just a person that goes to church. We're talking about a person that truly has accepted Christ as Savior. Doesn't mean that you are immune from problems. Matter of fact, this just popped in my mind last night as I was reading in bed before I went to sleep. Jesus said to the disciples before he died, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. 
And so we have people that listen to this podcast mm-hmm. that are believers. We have people that are non-believers, but that's reality. Number one, just because you believe or you're a believer doesn't mean that you are immune to tragedy or problems or difficulties because that's the reality of this life. And we weren't created for this life anyway. This is a rehearsal for eternity. Mm-hmm. And secondly, right. I think it makes another valid point in that even though you know Christ, and albeit again, maybe in your case, as you stated, maybe it was a more of a superficial. It was real, but it wasn't deep. Mm-hmm. Not only does mm-hmm. it not mean that you won't have problems, but it doesn't mean that you won't still have other struggles and trying to cope and overcome past things and difficulties, that it can be a process. It would be great if, <coughs> excuse me, it would be great if every person who came to Christ automatically all their problems were solved and everything just became perfect in their life. And sometimes that happens. I know people that have come to know the Lord and have broke free from addiction and have never walked back. And I know people that have come to know Christ just using addiction as an illustration that came to know Christ and they've had success and then failed and success and then failed. And I think it is a great caveat to where we're going to go on part two of this podcast. Folks, if you think you've heard the whole story, you haven't. We are about to turn the page on part two where it kind of sounds, if you're listening, well, things are beginning to come together. She's going to go to college. She's going to, uh, things are going to turn for the better, and you couldn't be more wrong. Uh, There's going to be some really difficult days ahead. We're going to talk about that, some things that many, I believe many people have gone through and that many people are still trying to cope with and deal with. We won't get into that today. But what I do want to do, PJ, and I'm looking so forward to part two with you, uh, again, I have so much respect for you. You're just truly, and that's something I just say, we, as I said earlier, we fell in love with you. You and your husband are just great people. You're doing a great work. I love how you're using your story to leverage that and to help other people. I, I love your faith, just who you are as a person and uh, your passion and compassion for other people. But I want to close out today's podcast again next week. Matter of fact, it might even be, we might even name part one promises broken and we might name part two promises kept. But I do want to reiterate what I said earlier, that if you want a copy of PJ's book, all you've got to do is order this book from her. She'll, she'll forward us every purchase that has been made and then we will cut her a check so it won't cost you anything. PJ, how can they get a copy of this book? Absolutely. I want to appreciate you again for that offer for all of your listeners. And the easiest thing for them to do is go to ChanelePJYarbrough.com. That's S-H-A-N-E-I-L-P-J-Y-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. And then there is a tab that says Contact. If they contact me there, they'll put their name, email, phone number, and in the message box, just say that they were one of Jay's listeners, and I will be able to get in touch with them as well as your office to get them a book sent their way. That sounds great, PJ. We're honored to do it, and I know it's a great ministry tool, and we want to do everything that we can. Obviously, our ministry is focused on evangelism, but we also understand that we have a responsibility also to do everything we can to help people heal. And I believe that there are people who are believers and non-believers that can benefit from your story. PJ, it has been such an honor to have you on today. I cannot wait for part two. You're just a phenomenal lady, a phenomenal guest, a phenomenal overcomer, and really 
just a picture-perfect testimony of no matter where you've been, God can take you to places that you would have never dreamed that he could take you. We will catch you next time on part two. Thanks for joining us this week on Taboo Talk with Jay Louder.